extraterrestrials. We are living on a different plane, focused on a different goal, and so we really don't fit in. We're countercultural, and that has a variety of implications in life. And he said this already some, but we're going to get a little big dose of it here now. It means that the worldlings often persecute us. They misunderstand us. They don't like us. And they run us down. And, you know, we know in the first century there's a lot of just, you know, physical persecution. And, I mean, that's hard to deal with. Who wants to be rejected? Who wants to be hated? And who wants to be tortured and killed if it comes to that? So... I mean, a part of our extraterrestrial life here is how you deal with, you know, the persecution. And so he's got really, we're going to look at that pretty much the rest of this chapter and all of chapter 4 and some parts of chapter 5. So that's a lot of the theme of the rest of this. And I think he says some pretty encouraging things and, and gives him some good instructions as to the right way to approach some of this. So, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior to Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. So, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? I am not sure how to take that. Here are two options. Why would anybody try to harm you if you're doing what's good? You know, doing good kind of disarms the enemy. You know, who wants to persecute somebody who's a good neighbor, who's kind, who's patient, who's generous, you know, who's helpful, who cares, who loves, you know, and who does who, Why would you persecute somebody who's doing good? So that in general, if you'll live a good life, it diminishes the persecution. The other option is who can harm you if you're doing what's good. They might persecute you. They might even kill you, but they can't hurt you. Like Jesus said, they can kill the body, but they can't destroy the soul. Like Paul said in Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? I don't think he meant if God is for us, nobody can be against us, but that whoever is against us is a nobody. So I think those are two options in that verse as to how he means that. And I don't really have a preference. Uh, both of them have some good points in their favor. Um, but even if you should suffer, so maybe if we take the first, you know, nobody's sure would harm you if you're doing what's right. But if you do suffer, sometimes they will, you know, obviously, uh, then for the sake of righteousness, then you are blessed. You know, it is really a blessing when we suffer for righteousness. Uh, it's amazing the number of passages that connect joy and persecution. You would think, you know, you'd never have that. But there is a real blessing in, in trusting the Lord enough and living for the Lord enough that we get persecuted in doing it. That strengthens us, it purifies us, and it means we're worth something to the Lord. You know, he's counting us as able to fight on the front line. 
And he says, don't fear their intimidation, don't be troubled, which is important. We will not do well if we're worried about men's rejection, men's approval, how we're going to get treated, what people are going to say about us. If we start fearing that, what are we going to do? <laughs> Shut up and, and or make compromises. You know, work harder to do things that will fit in, which isn't supposed to be what we do. So fear of men, intimidation by men, trying to do everything we can to make sure we're not rejected is going to lead us to betraying our otherworldly status. So we mustn't fear them. We, we can't be worried about what are they going to say. So when we feel rejected, we shouldn't say, where did I go wrong? Or something like that. We ought to be counted a motive of blessing and joy. Um, and and then, you know, how, do, how should we respond to that verbally? He said, well, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's a mouthful right there. I mean, we're to set apart Jesus as the Lord in our hearts, to where he is the one who rules over not just what we do, he rules over my mind, he rules over my emotions and my feelings. Sanctify him as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So, um, there are times we're going to get questioned living in this, uh, you know, this world, that we're foreigners, we're going to question about what's the deal with this hope you've got? You know, why are you so different? What makes you believe this stuff? What should we do? Give an answer of why? Yes, we ought to tell them. We have solid grounds for our faith. So we shouldn't be intimidated by the question. We ought to take advantage of the question. And give people uh, an, an answer. Give them a defense. Why do we have this hope? And, you know, there's something to be said for, maybe I could call it evidences. I mean, that's what people talk about a lot. There's something to be said for, you know, learning good approaches to showing people the reason for our faith. You know, and even answering some of the most common objections. Uh, the truth of the gospel can be defended in public. Um, and, and we need to do so. We need to give people that answer. Um, even though it might lead to persecution, don't let fear of persecution or intimidation keep you from, from you know, giving people a reason for your hope. That's hard for us sometimes. You know, we're in a society that doesn't like confrontation. We don't like being different. We don't like people thinking we're narrow-minded, intolerant, bigoted, or whatever. So there's some social pressure on us not to give an answer. But he said, give an answer. Tell them why. But with what kind of an attitude? attitude. Without an attitude. Without an attitude, that's right. (laughs) Good point. Yes, with gentleness and reverence. So we're not trying to browbeat. We're not trying to intimidate. We're not trying to overpower with some kind of aggressiveness and pushiness. We have the superior position. So we can be humble, considerate, courteous, 
I've used this illustration for other things. You've probably heard me use it, but I like it. What happens when you arm wrestle a little kid? You lose. You lose? Well, not only. If you're a good person. No, well, here's what I'm saying. If you're arm wrestling a little kid, can you let them almost put you down? Well, sure. You can play with them. You can let them do whatever, because whenever you decide, you can put, put them on the table with no problem. You know, so when you're clearly stronger, you don't have to be panicky. You don't have to be defensive. You don't have to get the jump on them. You don't have to put everything you've got into it to begin with. You know, you can let them, you know, have the advantage, you know, whatever. Well, that's the same way with us. We've got, we've got excellent reasons for our hope. And so we don't have to be belligerent. We don't have to be a bully about it at all. We can be calm. We can give, we can listen to them well. We don't have to interrupt them every time we turn around. We don't have to get the, you know, make sure we get the first and last word in and all that. Uh, you know, be respectful. Be, be courteous. If you're trying to convince somebody of something, you're going to convince them better if they feel like you've really listened to them, you've respected them. And I don't do this as much as I should, but I'll tell you a good technique when you're trying to persuade someone who believes something differently. Listen to them. Try to understand what they're saying and repeat it back to them before you hear what you're saying. And repeat it back to them better than they told you. Can you make the argument, their argument, stronger than they made it and make it sound better? Do you see the advantage of doing that? You do. And they know you know what they're saying. They don't think, oh, you just didn't understand me. And and they know that you understanding the force of that argument are not convinced at all. It's not because you didn't get it. You you got it. You you repeat it back to them and they need to copy that down and make the argument better the next time. You know, you did a good job on that. And then you say, But here's why this isn't right. That disarms them. And you can do it because their argument's so weak. You know, if you the truth has no fear of investigation. You know, we don't have to try to cheat to win. <laughs> uh, we can we can, you know, be very honest and calm. And you think about it. Two people in an argument, maybe they're speaking a foreign language you don't understand. One of them is very calm and speaking slowly. One of them is really agitated, getting flushed and being really aggressive and all that. Who's winning? (laughs) The calm one, right? I mean, there is something about just calmness and gentleness that that makes people realize you're confident. You're not panic-stricken. You're not desperate. You don't look like you're losing. So even if we were losing, it would be better to be that way. You know, it's like, you know, really, it's amazing the persuasive power of calm, quiet confidence. So that's a, that's a helpful way to approach things. Thoughts and comments uh, through 215.
also keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Make sure you live it because you can defend it verbally and if you don't live it, it, it really just kind of brings everything down to the ground. There can't be a contradiction between what you say and what you do. So make sure you've got a clear conscience. Make sure you're living the right thing. Don't just give an answer. But give an answer with meekness and, and, and reverence and give an answer with a life that's consistent with what you preach. You have the gentleness and reverence and you have the good life. You're way more likely to convince someone of the truth of the gospel. There is more persuasive power a lot of times in your behavior than there is in your speech. Not many people have been around a real Christian. Some of us haven't been around too many. You know, but you think about, you think about people even as Christians. Think about Christians that really live it and that really have a good attitude in discussions. Aren't they more effective in helping you and motivating you and you think about think about the Christians you admire the most and that just helped you the most, inspired you the most. Bet you anything, you see them as being really consistent in their life, and you see them as being people who are gentle and reverent, not bullies and aggressive. And then he says, For it is better if God should will it so, that is, that you would suffer, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Is it possible to suffer for doing what's wrong? Yeah. How do people treat somebody who's obnoxious and hard to get along with? Usually badly. Yeah. They usually reject them. They usually try to get away from them. They don't want to have much to do with them. They're not going to listen to them. I mean, there's really not much valuable I can think about for being... uh, you know, mistreated for for doing wrong. You know, when you when you get when you get punished for doing the wrong thing, I, I can't see how that's there's much honor in that. But when you're doing what's right and you get rejected, well that's that's way better to do that. You don't have to be embarrassed, you don't have to be ashamed, you don't have to feel bad when you're doing the right thing and that's why you got persecuted. If you're doing the wrong thing and you got rejected for it, well shame on you. So every once in a while you see a Christian who's just hard to belong You know, who's just really ornery. And he will brag about or lament how much he's being persecuted for the cause of Christ. But it's not for the cause of Christ when you get around him and know it's <coughs> So, that's a warning. Alright, anything you want to say uh, through verse uh, 18, 17? I do think it's interesting that they're asking about your hope which means you have to be, like, showing people that you have hope. And so, like, sometimes we're definitely like, oh, yeah, like, I believe in Jesus and all that, but, like, it doesn't, like, it should be changing how you're living to where people can see that you have hope, not just that, like, it wasn't like, oh, you're honest in this thing, like, which you should be as well, but... Good point. And really, the world doesn't have hope, so that makes you stand out. I mean, everybody else in the world is chasing their tail, realizing how empty things are getting. So if you really do have hope, you, you really look different, and it's attractive. Good point. 
Well, 18 to 22. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, <clears throat> which also he went and made proclamation of the spirit, now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected subjected to him. That's quite a handful there. There's a lot in that passage and a lot of uh, things to discuss. For Christ also died for sins once for all. You know, he's using Jesus as an example of a righteous sufferer. Jesus suffered for doing what was right, not for doing what was wrong, correct? And so he is kind of a model of somebody who was persecuted for righteousness. And the point he's making is, there is a great victory when you suffer for righteousness. Jesus is an example. He was one who did suffer for righteousness, And in that, he won the victory and triumphed over his enemies. So this is, you know, exhibit A of why it's better to suffer for what's right and about the outcome when you suffer for what's right. Jesus is always the best example of every good thing. Now, I'm going to uh, um, suggest something here. This is really not that important, but this is a great illustration of, of a question that what we have a lot of times. Does anybody in verse 18, in the beginning of it, for Christ also died for sins once for all? Does anybody have anything other than he died for sins once for all? Suffered. Suffered. What, what version do you have? Yeah, NIV. NIV. Anybody else have suffered? Yeah, New King James. New King James. ESV. ESV has suffered. All right. Numerical standard has died. It doesn't even have anything different in the margin. So let me tell you what the deal is on that. The great majority of Greek manuscripts and ancient translations have died. Only a few of them have suffered. But this is a case where suffered is probably the right reading. Let me check, tell you why. You know, it's not just a matter of counting up manuscripts. You're trying to figure what was the reasoning behind the shift. And when it says blanked for sins, it's so common to think died for sins that that was an easy shift to make instead of suffered for sins. Um, but, But it really fits much better in the context he suffered for sins. This is really not telling us what to do if we die for our, if we die in persecution. You know, if you die, there's not a lot you're going to learn from this. You know, this is when you suffer for sins. Suffered is used 11 times in 1 Peter, died never. So suffered is much more what he's using in 1 Peter. And it I think it's much better to use to say it was originally suffered and just early on some of the manuscripts were changed to died because that was a common thing for the scribe to think. 
Now, it's it's a debatable issue, obviously, and so it's not terrible if it has died. But I think this is one where suffered they, they, they analyzed the evidence correctly. And then it's saying for Christ also suffered for sins once for all. Like I say, that's not a big deal, but that's an interesting case. Uh, you wouldn't very often go way against the external evidence of the manuscript, but in this case, I think it's probably about it. He died, or he suffered, the just for the unjust. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Jesus was the just. But why did he suffer? Did he suffer for his own sins? Obviously not. He suffered for our sins. The just suffered for the unjust. Um, that he might bring us to God. That's what he was doing. He was trying to take away the barrier of sin and restore us back, reconcile us back into the right relationship with God that Adam and Eve lost in the garden. And that we've lost because of our sins. So Jesus suffered the just in place of the unjust to bring us to God, to, to eliminate the gap, the barrier between us. Now here's the part of this that's more difficult. Having been put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Now it seems to me like he's making a contrast there. You know, this is kind of a balanced statement, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And what's the contrast? I think it's between dying uh, and, uh, and, and being raised. Uh, that, that when it says put to death in the flesh, it's, it's putting to death as a human being. You know, emphasizing the reality of the incarnation. He was put to death physically. But he was made alive in the spirit when Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Um, and, and, and that's such a key factor in Jesus. Um, you know, Romans 8, 11, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So, Jesus died physically. He was raised from the dead. And I don't believe he's... So I don't believe he's talking about, in the next verse... Something that happened between the time Jesus died and raised. He was in the grave for what, 36 hours? But I don't think we're looking at that period. I think it's after he was raised from the dead that what, that this happens. In verse 19. So he was put, made alive in the spirit, that he was, he was raised from the dead, in which also he went and made proclamations to the spirits in prison. Well, did you know that? Jesus went in his resurrected life and made proclamation to the spirits in, no, in prison. Do some of you in your translation have, like, preached to the spirits in prison? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Preached is probably not the best term because preached often indicates, like, preaching the gospel. But it wasn't the term for preaching the gospel. It was the term for making a proclamation, making an announcement. So he went and, and he made an announcement to the spirits, I haven't italicized now, but but it's not in the original. He, he preached to the spirits in prison. All right, so this made proclamation doesn't necessarily mean the gospel. You know, it's used of Jonah in the Septuagint, uh, making a proclamation in Nineveh. He sure didn't preach in the gospel. Um, so it's just, he, uh, Jesus went and made a declaration to these in prison spirits. Now, the real uh, critical issue in this is who in the world were these spirits in prison? Well, the word spirits 
in the Bible, the New Testament, almost always means demons or angels. You know, unclean spirits or, or spirits uh, uh, of, the, of, of celestial, but, but it's almost always angels. There's only one time that spirits is used for men in the Bible, and that's in Hebrews 12, verse 23, where he talks about, uh, let's see if I can find that, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So it's clear by the rest of that that he was talking about human spirits when he says spirits of the righteous made perfect. But all the other times spirits is used in the Bible, it refers to spirit beings, you know, angels, demons, whatever. There is a story recorded in First Enoch that's an apocryphal, really a pseudepigraphal book, I guess. But it's, some, it's, a, it's a Jewish writing that talked about uh, this. Uh, the, the, the angels that uh, cohabited with the women uh, in Genesis 6. There may be some allusion to that story. There is an allusion to First Enoch in the book of Jude. doesn't mean it was inspired. I don't think it was, but it actually preserved some accurate accounts. Um, there's an allusion to the Maccabees in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. So there's allusions to other books and historical references and so forth. So, I believe that Jesus showed the victory of righteous suffering by going after he was raised and proclaiming his victory over the angels in prison. The angels in prison who once were disobedient in the days of Noah, which takes us back to Genesis 6. Obviously, this is debatable. But I think in, the, in Genesis 6... When he says in verse 1, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. I think in that passage, when the sons of God went into the daughters of men, it's angels that sinned. They fell by going into women that was not appropriate, that was not right. They didn't keep their proper place. And they were then held in bondage. Now let me show you two other verses in the New Testament. Three, maybe. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. So he didn't spare the, spare the angels uh, when they sinned, or the ancient world, but he did preserve Noah. So he's connecting the angels and the ancient world in contrast with Noah. But especially Jude... Jude is very helpful. Jude 6, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh or exhibited as an example of, uh, in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So he's comparing Sodom and Gomorrah 
with the angels in this sense, they went after strange flesh. Now, with Sodom and Gomorrah, strange flesh meant same gender flesh. In the case of the angels, strange flesh meant human flesh. Both cases, it was strange flesh. It wasn't the kind of unions God expected. The angels abandoned their proper domain. They just transgressed the Lord's will in that. And so they were then imprisoned. And Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, went and announced his victory over those imprisoned angels. And it shows then the victory of a righteous sufferer. Jesus being kind of the prototypical righteous sufferer. His declaration of victory over those wicked angels is a sign that righteous suffering leads to victory. I might suggest also in uh, in this, in 1 Peter 3, verse 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So verse 22, you know, kind of confirms that idea of the theme of the passage being the victory over the de- demonic forces Jesus gained by his suffering <coughs> and death. Um, and I'm going to pause there, I think, uh, and let you ask questions and make comments before we try to deal with this uh, <coughs> stuff about Noah and baptism. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, you were saying that made alive in the spirit. Was just referring to his resurrection? I think so, yes. Obviously he was raised in the flesh, too. Right, but it was, a uh, no, it was the spirit that raised him. Okay, so it's not referring to his state. After but if the spirit raised. of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised by Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So, yeah, Jesus had, I mean, uh, I don't even know what to say about his resurrection nature. Uh, it seemed physical and not so. Right. Less so than before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, he seemed to be able to materialize in uh, locked rooms. So I don't know exactly how that worked. Okay. But, yes, he was physical. And he said, the spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Right. So he saw himself as physical. Why does it keep, like in these passages you showed us, why does it keep referring back to these particular angels in prison? Like, what is significant about them? We don't know. Okay. Is it possible that all or most of the angels that sinned, this is when they sinned? This was the big fall of angels. Wow, I mean, we know nothing about the rest of the story of angels. So maybe the angels fell all over the place. But it's possible that this is the fall of the angels. Except for the devil, obviously. Yeah, which we really don't have any statement about the origin of the devil when it's all said and done. Though I think it's reasonable to think he was some kind of a celestial being that fell. But, whatever. So, I, I mean, I'm not affirming that, but I do think that's a possibility. And it is interesting that it seems like there's a zeroing in on, when it talks about the angels that fell that are in prison, it's in connection with Noah, or in connection with the going after strange flesh from, from Genesis chapter 6 or whatever. Right. 
is so what is the significance? Why why did he even need to do that or what why are we even told that he did that? I don't know that it, what's the point? Well I think two things. First of all, I think this is a an illustration for Peter of the of the sufferer for righteousness gaining the victory. You know, Jesus shows you you suffer the just for the unjust, you gain the victory and are raised and defeat all your enemies. So I think Jesus becomes an example. You know, he's kind of, you know, he kind of blazed the trail of righteous suffering that gains an incredible victory. Now, I also think that it's possible in some of these passages that you kill two birds with one stone. So why pick this example? Well, he's able to connect it with Noah and baptism. So maybe he kind of intentionally chose this to be able to say some things about that as well. I don't know that for sure, but I don't think that's impossible. Uh, I've asked the question a lot of times in Acts 2, why did Peter pick Joel's prophecy and not one of the other prophecies about the Spirit being poured out in the Old Testament? Because I think he got to that point about and whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, and that was a jumping off place for him to preach the sermon in Acts chapter 2. So I think sometimes they may pick illustrations that are going to enable them to make another point as well. But then again, I mean, the fact that Jesus won the victory over the demonic forces is about the greatest example you can give of righteous sufferers being victorious. I mean, what could be bigger than that? Is there an implication that we're also going to be able to, in a sense, make a proclamation over something. <laughs> um, if we, I mean, if we are if we are a righteous sufferer like Christ was, we're going to be raised in, in all of this, and then do we also get to? I don't want to say like rub it in, but to be able to say, <laughs> I won, and you were wrong. Kind of thing where I don't know. <laughs> is this saying he did this after he rose from the dead? I think it is. So you have to. <laughs> Which means he wasn't as busy when he was dead as some people say. I don't know how busy he was in those hours. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he's in council all the time, so we don't know where Jesus was. <laughs> illustration to make sense, you need the sufferer being persecuted and then overcoming the persecutors. Yeah. And that, so then I mean, that's what you have to have here to make this work. The spirits have to be the ones that had turned against him and were persecuting him, whether they were the demons or whatever in some sense for this illustration to be well, clearly the persecution was Satan's body. I mean, we can certainly say that. I don't know if we want to say these guys got out of prison long enough to uh, be able to hurt Jesus and they can do it from prison. But, but it's the same deal. You're still you're triumphing over these forces that were against him for sure. And so do you think that anywhere it talks about demons, it's talking about angels football? Well, I expect it is. I don't know if I can prove that, though. You do have a statement up in like Matthew 25 about the devil and his angels, so we know the devil has angels. 
I've rather guessed that that's more or less what the demons were, but I mean, if somebody tried to just press me on that for, for solid proof, I don't know that I can give it. So not all of the demons are in prison. No, that's right. They're just these special ones? I mean, yeah. Uh, or, or, I mean, wow, there's so much we don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, sometimes when we're trying to deal with even like angels, wow, there's so many questions. It's even more so in the side of the demons because the Bible doesn't try to give us a full explanation of the operations of Satan's, uh, you know, world. I mean, you know, just why would we do that? <laughs> Maybe they get out on work release. Maybe they do. Maybe. So then what I want to know, which I'm sure you can't answer, is if it says that the angels went after strange flesh, that would indicate that there was non-strange flesh, but we know that the angels aren't married, so I don't know. Well, I don't know if we can say that strange flesh means non-strange. In case of the angels... Non-strange might be just not going after any flesh. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so we're 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 talking about we're still talking about flesh. Like it, when you're saying like strange flesh, I mean for them the opposite is no flesh at all, right? I I don't know what what would be non-strange flesh to them. Well, I mean, I, mean, yeah, I guess flesh could mean something other than human flesh. Yeah. yeah. You know, I guess. I mean, you know, you think of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, you know, if they'd had normal marriages, that would be fine. So, I mean, I don't know if there's any normal flesh for angels, but... Maybe there are no Are there gingers? I did not, as far as I know. <laughs> I don't know. Angel flesh, human flesh, Wait, Obviously, I mean, Michael was an angel. Maybe it was... Yeah, his boy's name. Had a boy's name. <laughs> And Gabriel. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> that name could go either way. <laughs> Maybe they're all gender neutral names. <laughs> so, I don't know all the answers to all that. But I do know that these <laughs> angels were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. You know, like, you don't know how long of that time the ark was being constructed, but during that time he was waiting patiently. Uh, in which a few, that is eight persons, that's literally in the original eight souls, were saved by water. Uh, this is not a good translation, brought safely through the water. No, 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 no. We're saved by water, that's what it says. They just didn't understand it, so they tried to re-put it. Um, so eight <laughs> souls saved. Was it just their souls that were saved, or was it their whole person? Their whole person. You know, souls in First Peter means person. doesn't mean spirit. A lot of times in the Bible, soul means person. We've gotten ourselves, we, we are really close to the Greek philosophy, that, you know, you're really a soul. You're not really a body at all. Your body's kind of a, you know, necessary evil, kind of uh, housing your soul. That's not true. The Bible teaches there's a future for the body. And the body's an integral part of who we are. We're not going to be in heaven as unembodied souls. We're going to have bodies as well, because that's what it takes to make us a real, you know, full person. Uh, so it's eight, eight spirits, eight, eight people, not eight spirits. Um, but but they were brought. They were they were saved by water. 
And, and a lot of people don't even understand that. Because, you know, looks to me like they were saved from the water, not saved by the water. But they needed the water to float on. They were saved <laughs> from the world. evil people. Exactly. By the water. This is salvation in terms of separation from the wickedness and evil in the world. Now, talking about being saved from drowning, we're talking about being saved from this world that was all evil continually. And so that's the parallel. So just like Noah was saved from wickedness by the water of the flood, so we're saved from our unclean sins by the water of baptism. Corresponding to that baptism, also now, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, you know, it's, it's, baptism saves us. You know, separates us from wickedness. Just like it did with Noah and, and the flood. Noah entered into a new world cleansed from sin. We're baptized and enter into a new world, a new life cleansed from sin. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience, appealing to him for forgiveness and cleansing. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that takes us right back to being made alive in the Spirit, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, which takes us right back to his making proclamation to those in prison spirits. Um, so, you know, clearly, I don't need to fear these evil forces of Wickedness. I don't have to fear, fear the demons and the evil angels and all that. The Lord has gained the victory over them. They have no power over us. So, basically, I think this passage is saying there's a great victory, there's a great triumph for righteous sufferers. Jesus is an illustration. Comments and questions? That's right. Very good. Calvin, listen up. You can't tell us how long it took Noah to build the ark. I don't know. God was patient while it was taking him. Anything else on through? All right, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6.